This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Cat Coven. Cat Coven is an online shop for weirdos, witches, and warriors created by Brooklyn-based artist Kirsty Farrett. The shop is a way for Kirsty to share her magical artwork on products ranging from apparel, catnip toys, pillows, mugs, patches, and other accessories. Her illustrations are inspired by her love of art history, witchcraft, feminism, and of course, cats. Nearly all the screen-printed items are printed by Kirsty in small batches to ensure quality. Visit the shop at catcoven.com or on Instagram at cat underscore coven. And Witchwave listeners get 15% off their entire Cat Coven order by using offer code WITCHWAVE15. So pop on over to catcoven.com and use code WITCHWAVE15 for 15% off today. One of my favorite things to do is to attend conferences with like-minded spirits. And that's why I'm so excited about this amazing conference happening in April of 2020 in Hunt Valley, Maryland, with a spectacular lineup of teachers, rituals, and entertainment. Actually, though, it's two conferences in one venue for one registration fee the Sacred Space Conference, and the Between the Worlds Conference are joining forces for some deep magic and great fun. They only do this every several years, so don't miss it. For more information, follow the links at sacredwheel.org and sacredspacefoundation.org. Again, that's sacredwheel.org and sacredspacefoundation.org, and you'll learn more about these two magical conferences in one happening in Maryland on April 9th through 12th, 2020. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Welcome to the Witch Wave. Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, Blessed Yule, and I hope you had a wonderful and sparkling solstice as well. It's no surprise we have so many festivals of light that happen during this, the darkest time of year here in the Northern Hemisphere. Candles, Yule logs, fairy lights, bonfires... We set them ablaze, then huddle together to generate warmth and start welcoming back the sunlight as the days slowly but surely start to lengthen. 
I've been thinking quite a bit about the notion of light in spiritual or new age circles. So often it is used to signal positivity and happiness and optimism, and that's all great in theory. But sometimes light can be so blinding that it blots out complexity, detail, and nuance. During the holidays, we can feel pressure to be cheery and merry, and sometimes this feels overwhelming or reopens old wounds. I hope that however you're feeling at this time of year, that you give yourself permission to be as generous with yourself as you are to the people around you. I enjoy holiday festivities, but I admit I'm often that person you'll find taking a break in the stairwell outside the party, having a quiet moment to myself to recharge before I go back in and be social. Over the years, it's also become more and more important to me that during these busy days, I prioritize doing ritual, whether alone or with my coven. I say thank you for the year, light some candles, and take some time to turn inward and see in the dark. I love witchcraft because it honors both light and shadow, both day and night. And since we're still in the thick of the darkest month, I feel compelled to share one of my favorite poems that honors the nocturnal side of the self. Sleeping in the Forest by Mary Oliver I thought the earth remembered me. She took me back so tenderly, arranging her dark skirts, her pockets full of lichens and seeds. I slept as never before, a stone on the riverbed, nothing between me and the white fire of the stars, but my thoughts, and they floated light as moths among the branches of the perfect trees. All night I heard the small kingdoms breathing around me, the insects and the birds who do their work in the darkness. All night I rose and fell as if in water, grappling with a luminous doom. By morning I had vanished at least a dozen times into something better. Now, don't get me wrong, I love light as well, and in these winter weeks, I welcome it. I need it. But I think light is especially valuable when it is used as a tool to bring acknowledgement and attention to the parts of our hearts and our world which have been hidden away due to shame, fear, or injustice. In this way, light is an equalizer, bringing necessary balance and brightness to our lives.
Today's guest, Dianca London, is a true light bringer. As a writer, a professor, and a scholar, her work often focuses on spotlighting unsung or undersung figures in history, particularly those who were gifted and bewitching people of color. She also is no stranger to the notion of balance, because as you'll hear, she came from a conservative Christian upbringing and is now a practitioner of witchcraft, and we'll be discussing how she reconciles these two sides of her spiritual self. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches. Rose writes, I am a newcomer to my path, so I am still finding my way around my energy and the power I know I have within me. I feel stuck, though, as the past five years have been focused on providing support for those around me, and now my own picture is empty. When I imagine my inner landscape... It's pretty barren and dry instead of the lush green garden I would rather be tending. With little to draw on from inside of me, I feel like my magic is ineffective as a result. Are there some rituals that can reestablish my sense of self and refill my empty inner picture? Any suggestions are heartily welcome. Hi, Rose. I have a feeling a lot of listeners can relate to your message in general, but especially around this time of year. There's pressure to spend lots of time with family, to spend a lot of money, to expend a lot of energy, to host or visit people, and all at the end of the year when so many of us feel tapped out and tired, and when nature itself is telling us to hibernate and lay fallow for a bit. But I hear you that this is a perennial issue that you've been having. So here's my advice. Rather than lamenting about the lush garden that you can't find within yourself, why not try honoring the magic of the landscape that is there? During the winter, here in the Northeast where I live, nature gives us striking bare branches, snow, and also evergreen trees. My folks moved to Arizona a couple years ago, and I've fallen in love with the desert. I find its stark beauty to feel so magical, and the vast stretches of land bring me a sense of serenity and sacredness. So rather than imagining a withered garden inside of yourself, Perhaps you can accept how you're feeling, but reframe it as another sort of terrain. Is this a place you can physically visit or find a picture of at least? Because you are to go there, whether in person or in your mind, and you are going to make an offering for it. Now, what does that mean, an offering? Well, you can write it a poem, light a candle for it, leave out a beautiful bowl of water for it. 
Your name is Rose, so perhaps a sprinkling of rose petals or a lovely bouquet would be appropriate. But the idea is that the spirit of this landscape is something that you will visit and tend to and give a bit of your time to on a consistent basis. Even if it's just 30 seconds a day or a week even, that's it. That's all you need to do. Just periodically check in with this landscape and give to its spirit with your actual body and your attention and with real physical materials. And I guarantee you'll start to feel more connected, more grounded, and more nourished with time. Start now and keep going for a season. And let me know how you're doing come spring. I hope by then new seeds will start to sprout, or at least you will come to a place of peace and gratitude for the landscape that's already there. Now, on to my guest. Dianca London is a writer whose articles about witchcraft, literature, and black culture have appeared in such places as Vice, Bitch, Glamour, The Washington Post, Shondaland, Self, Nylon, Electric Literature, and so many, many, many more. She is a Combelio Fiction Fellow the former online editor of a well-read black girl, and the former prose editor of Lit Magazine. She also teaches writing at the New School and Pratt Institute, and I truly cannot wait for her memoir, Planning for the Apocalypse, which is forthcoming from Simon & Schuster's 37 Inc., On this episode, Dianca discusses the magic of her favorite poetry witches, the ways she sheds light on historical quote-unquote outsiders, and how she integrates Christianity and witchcraft in her spiritual life. Dianca joined me in person at a recording studio here in Brooklyn. Bianca London. Welcome to the Witch Wave. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy you're here, Bianca. You are, as I've told you many times before, one of my favorite people and favorite writers. So it is such an honor to have you here. That means so much. And it's also pretty amazing that we are now having this conversation right after Gemini full moon, which makes me feel very seen as a Gemini. That is so true. You're actually one of the more prominent and proud Geminis that I know. I feel like I've not had a conversation with you where your Gemini-ness hasn't come up. So why don't we start with that? What makes you identify as a Gemini? Why is that a really important part of your identity? Well, I think it might stem back to something that isn't very witchy, but is very much so, I think, part of being a child, is that my birthday was always celebrated after the school year. And I always felt like I was getting screwed over a little bit because everyone else would get cupcakes and everyone would celebrate and have snack time and everyone would be like, happy birthday. And mine always kind of slipped through the cracks because my birthday is on June 13th. And also we had to do a report or like exercise in school and elementary school to find people who are famous who also share your birthday. 
and I share my birthday with the Olsen twins, who <laughs> I grew up loving um, for their many, many VHS movies and also from being on Full House. So ever since then, I'm just like, yeah, I'm a Gemini. I'm a proud June 13th Gemini. Sometimes my birthday is on Friday the 13th. I'm fine with that. I own it. <laughs> and being a writer, I feel like being someone who tells stories and talks forever, it's super helpful. Absolutely. Now, you are working on a book, and we're going to dive deeply into the content of that book in a little while. But I'm very, very familiar with all of the articles that you've written. You are so prolific. Most recently, you did a profile of Margaret Atwood. But I feel like a big through line of a lot of your writing is to shed a light on unsung people throughout history and specifically looking at culture through a lens of blackness. So I wanted to start there because you recently gave a talk at the conference that I co-organized, the Occult Humanities Conference, and this talk was called Moonmarked and Touched by Sun, Black Women Writers and the Reclamation of the Witch. I know you're a big fan of poetry, and I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about some of your favorite poets who you see as reclaiming the witch archetype. For me, poetry has always felt like a spell. I feel like that's something you touch on in your book. You talk about the grimoire and grammar and how putting together a series of words is casting a spell. It is an incantation. And I feel in that respect, although I do not have the the prowess or strengths that I wish I did when it comes to cultivating poetry, I very much so am always drawn to it. And I feel like it cuts through the thick of things and it goes straight to the marrow in a way that longer forms like prose or a novel doesn't. And so I feel like especially in times like now, I think I got more looped into reading poetry and consuming it almost daily after the election. I feel like it's so sad that we're like, the election, and we know which one we're talking about. Yes, we do. But I feel like since then, it's been a real solace for me. And I know that for many people, especially those who are marginalized, when you grow up and you read things in English class, or even in college, even if you are an English major, the works that are being taught aren't always the most diverse. You might have a few poets of color, a few poets who identify as women. But other than that, most of it's by straight white men who were writing and didn't have trouble paying the bills, I guess is a way to say it. So when I discovered the poetry of Audre Lorde, which I discovered via her essays, that opened a floodgate for me. And I feel like her work and then looking at the people who were in community with her, who were also generating work, kind of gave me this map um, for kind of seeing how they weren't just creating poetry and publishing and supporting each other's work, but they also were kind of in a way a coven. And mapping that out and seeing the overlapping of the Venn diagrams of communities of writers and tracing it not just from someone like Lucille Clifton being in community with Toni Morrison, who was her editor, but also looking at people like Lucille Clifton being in conversation with Audre Lorde and then Audre Lorde being in conversation and community with Adrienne Rich and then like tracing and it just gets larger and larger. And it's just this beautiful interwoven fabric of conversation and intention where you almost feel like each poem is like kind of echoing back the same conversation and the same dialogue in a way that also invites you in as the reader, or if you dare to be brave enough, a poet, to kind of see where that can lead you. And I feel like in times like now that oftentimes feel very overwhelming, it can be a real compass. Absolutely. So I understand these poets in this 
kind of paradigm as a coven. And also I learned from you that Audre Lorde is the person who coined the phrase self-care. And I think the magic of healing oneself and fortifying oneself with joy and creativity is a very witchly thing to do as well. But I'd love for you to perhaps, by way of introduction to some of these poets, choose one of their works and perhaps we can use that as a springboard to talk more about their witchiness. I guess I'll do two because I deeply love Rita Dove. And I think before we started this conversation, I saw your tweet that you posted for one poem that's, I think it's Demeter's Prayer to Hades. And I love that poem so much. But I think it's like a homework assignment because I'm always like, I'm a professor. I'm going to give you homework and you're going to like it. <laughs> that will be the assignment for anyone who is listening in on this conversation. To just Google that. I think the Poetry Foundation has it online and it's absolutely amazing. And I've sometimes co-opted it as my own prayer or my own spell in times of need or times where I need strength. Before we get to Audre Lorde, then the Rita Dove line in particular, I'm going to paraphrase it, but it's something to the effect of how there are no curses, only mirrors. And I love that notion so much because, you know, people often ask me about how do I feel about hexing people? How do I feel about the spell to bind Trump and all of this stuff? And, you know, I usually say I don't believe in hexing, which is true. I don't believe in harming other people. But I do think kind of the ultimate curse on someone is to say, I hope you know what you did. Mm -hmm. You know, I hope you have to face yourself and really feel the pain that you have caused other people. So that is certainly my wish for a lot of the people that are currently in power right now. And I'm so grateful to you for introducing me to that poem. Yeah. And I think it's really amazing thinking about the fact that like, Rita Dove was like the national poet laureate. And like right now, Joy Harjo is. And she's like the first woman who's indigenous to occupy that role. And it's just wild to think that before that, there's Tracy K. Smith, who is, a, I think she's like one of the youngest or second youngest or something like that, but also a black woman who's the poet laureate. So she would have been like the second one, I think, um, Rita Dove being the first. And it's just like looking at these times where the government is like turning its eye away from the mirror mm -hmm. to show what they're doing, what they've done, what they've been doing yes. for generations, that we have these poets who are women, who are witchly, kind of guiding us with this light. And it's just interesting to me that poetry can be so subversive, despite the, the capitalistic nightmare, <laughs> like white supremacist landscape that we live in. I don't know. I feel like that's like my riff on what Bell Hooks calls, I think she's like a five term thing of what she usually refers to America as, but I can't remember what it is because it always makes me so angry. So I'm just like, I've like put it in the back of my mind. But Audre Lorde, I feel like is someone who I'm always thinking about. And that feels like an easy thing to say right now because I feel like she's kind of come back into a lot of rooms, into a lot of spaces. She's always someone that I feel like her name is coming up in conversations with friends. And also her image and her words have been kind of, not necessarily appropriated, but they've been co-opted and wielded in ways that I'm not quite sure she would have been comfortable with mm -hmm. or is comfortable with. Mm -hmm. So I always feel like it's important to remember the origin of her words and the intention behind them. So I guess I'll read A Woman Speaks. And for anyone who's like searching for her poetry, a lot of it is very available in your local libraries. She was a librarian in New York City. So that's an important thing. That's part of her legacy that I think people forget as well to make literature more accessible. You don't always have to go out and buy the book. You can borrow it or find it online. 
But I found a really nice used copy of the collected poems of Audre Lorde online. And it's wonderful because there's like everything in there. And some of the poems appear more than once because it's every collection. But I feel like there's a nice like kind of extra echo effect that happens when you are sitting on a rainy day or a sunny day (laughs) and just like sitting with the book and seeing what happens. And it feels very much so like bibliomancy in a way. I love that. Yeah. It's like one of my favorite, favorite terms. I'm just like, no, I wasn't an English major. I was someone practicing bibliomancy. (laughs) Yes. But I'll read A Woman Speaks. The first line of this poem is what I titled the talk that I did at the conference. A woman speaks. Moon marked and touched by sun. My magic is unwritten. But when the sea turns back, it will leave my shape behind. I seek no favor, untouched by blood, unrelenting as the curse of love, permanent as my errors or my pride. I do not mix love with pity, nor hate with scorn. And if you would know me, look into the entrails of Uranus, where the restless oceans pound. I do not dwell within my birth, nor my divinities, who am ageless and half-grown, and still seeking my sisters, witches, and Dahomey, wear me inside their coiled clothes, as our mother did, mourning. I have been woman for a long time. Beware my smile. I am treacherous with old magic and the noon's new fury. With all your wide futures promised, I am woman and not white. Gorgeous. That's one of my favorites of hers. And if I'm not mistaken, that's from her collection, Black Unicorn. Is that right? I believe so. Yes. Awesome. Um, and I think it's one of the, maybe the second poem in that collection. So... When you are reading a poem like that, whether to yourself or aloud, what does it evoke for you? I feel like for me, a lot of times I am a person like many who grapples with anxiety on a daily basis. Oftentimes I think poetry calms me down because it almost feels like tarot in a way where it gives me images, metaphors, archetypes, hints of color that can kind of just reground me or also allow for me to project what I do know I feel onto something and see where it falls Mm. and kind of follow it from there so I feel like with that poem especially I feel like for me it could be maybe one day I look at it and one stanza hits a different way than it did before or maybe like a verse or two maybe if I look at the whole thing one verse over another is what I really want to zoom in on So I feel like sometimes a poem can have poems inside of it in that way. And I feel like all the poets out there are probably like, no, that is not how it works. There are rules. We (laughs) want it to be read fully. But I feel like I've always been a fan of returning to any text in any genre and just zooming in on one small piece and seeing what it teaches me or seeing what what it can reteach me. And I feel like that definitely comes from, for better or worse, from my history of like growing up in the church, growing up in a like very fundamentalist Baptist background, but then also on the other side of that, like a charismatic, like black church kind of situation. I don't even know like the terminology because we hopped around a lot Mm. in terms of denominations, but paying attention to a holy script, which in the Christian tradition is the scripture, right? The Bible. And then like going in and looking at a verse, looking at the first part, looking at the second part. And I feel like having done that from such an early age, Although there were ways that I definitely feel like that damaged me and damaged part of my psyche and my spirit. There was something about the way navigating a text and looking at it from all different sides 
that I feel like definitely like sparked something in me that I've kind of attributed to all the things that I take in in terms of text, whether that's like a film or a poem or a novel or a JSTOR article. I really enjoy going and looking at like different interviews that my favorite authors have given, especially like from the 70s and like the 80s where people weren't in the room telling them not to say certain things. So they get a little spicy and those things are fun to look at because you can kind of see different sides of who they are outside of the context of a poem and kind of bringing that in to kind of breathe deeper insight into it or just to kind of get a deeper sense of their embodiment and like the things that shaped them into conjuring the words that they did put on the page. Mm, mm, I really, really love that. I often think of examining artwork as being a kind of archaeologist. You're sort of excavating all these different layers of sediment and finding these little treasures beneath. I'm curious, so when you were a student in school and you were discovering the works of Audre Lorde, was there something that you sensed was inherently kind of magical about her? I feel like I discovered Audre Lorde's work a little late, I would say. But given where I'm from, I'm from like a hybrid of rural and suburban area in Pennsylvania. So I'm always so grateful and so in awe of how I became the person that I am and how I'm still becoming the person I am and will be. But I started looking at her work in a, I think it was like a women's rhetoric course that I was taking when I was studying for my master's in humanities. And we were looking at different speeches by women. So we also were looking at their essays. And we were looking at Adrian Rich. So then we then went to Audre Lorde since they were two people that were in community and collaboration with each other. And that's the first time where I like discovered that like anger and speaking out and letting people know what you feel is important. The idea that silence can suffocate you and that mm. you're not going to survive if you stay silent. So I feel like the fact that Audre Lorde like examines that and like turns that on its many sides in so many of her essays and Sister Outsider. That was when I realized that there was something about her that kind of like got underneath my skin. I think it's very inherently witchy or witchly to be a person who is going to speak power to truth or truth to power rather, or maybe even power to truth. I don't know. Maybe it can go both <laughs> ways. Cause I feel like sometimes people know the truth, but they don't have the, they don't want to evoke their power or wield it. And when I discovered her work, I was one of two people of color in a classroom that was very small. It was a feminist class, so I felt like it was a safe enough or brave enough space. But things would come up in class and I would just feel like I could feel myself like kind of going into that little pocket where we go when we don't feel comfortable. So we're just like, I'm just blocking this all out. I'll get through it and complain about it with my friends. But after reading her work, I started finding strategic ways to either use her work or the work of other people we were engaging with in class to help me kind of call in or invoke their voices so I could like start to lean into my own authority and my own voice. And now I'm just like, you know, I don't know, I'm not an asshole, but I'm a little like unapologetic now about what I believe and what I think is ethical and what I think is important for us to consider when we're sharing space and community with other people, um, especially when it comes to like, whose stories are getting enough space. So I feel like Audre Lorde and many of the people that she was in, in community with have continuously taught me to challenge the parts of myself that I'm looking away from because I feel like there's information that we need there. Um, but it's hard when you feel like you have to rely on your own voice. So I think having those poets or writers or whoever it might be 
again, I'm sorry, poets out there, I understand the differences of genre. Um, <laughs> but I mean, in the sense that it has the ability to reveal something. Mm. And then you're responsible to kind of do something with that. I love that. I love that. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey, honey, a package arrived for you. It's gigantic. What's in it? Hooray! It's my Mithras candles. That's a lot of candles. Um, have you seen them? Mithras candles' signature dripped pillars look like they've been crafted for a wizard's secret library. Right, but... They look like they've been harvested from a magical cave of wax stalactites. Yes, but I... And their natural honey scent makes me feel so calm. You want me to feel calm, don't you? They're, they're lovely, but how many do you really need? Well, there are also now Mithras candle votives, pyramids, and tapers. With so many different shapes and sizes, I can use them on my altar, in rituals, in our living room, on the dining room table, in the bath. Plus, they make the best gifts. Amy, we live in a two-bedroom apartment. Yes, but we're supporting a sweet small business. Remember, Mithras candles are handcrafted from the purest golden cappings beeswax by the loveliest folks in Philadelphia. Well, I was made in Philadelphia too. Synchronicity, Matt. See, <laughs> I'm glowing just thinking about it. Okay. Well, giant boxes of Mithras candles being carried up the stairs it is. And if you did want to get me some more candles, just go to MithrasCandle.com and use offer code WITCH to get 10% off. That's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com and use offer code WITCH for 10% off. Got it. Offer code WITCH at MithrasCandle.com. Just... Pretend to be surprised. We never had this conversation. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Dianca London. So, Dianca, I know we've spent a lot of time on Audre Lorde, but I want to give her just a little bit more time because she's so amazing. And, you know, the that title that you brought up, Sister Outsider, I think of that word outsider. And to me, that's a word that is very witchly because I think that no matter... How popular witches currently seem to be, I think we are always outsiders. We are always marginalized people. And certainly some of us are, you know, dealing with different kinds of marginalization. Absolutely. But I wondered, is the notion of feeling like an outsider something that helped you gravitate toward the archetype of the witch in some of the work that you enjoy um, you know, certainly writing about and speaking about, as well as some of the work that you make. Definitely. This might come up a little later, but I feel like one thing about me that has shaped who I am to my core and who I'll always be is that I've always felt like an outsider. But in many ways, I have been because I grew up in a suburb that was, I always say it was suffocatingly white, which I feel like is unfair to all the people that like I didn't have a problem with from my hometown. But it was a very white suburb mm -hmm. and I am not a white person. And I went to a very, very white school that was also very religious and was associated with Bob Jones University. That's who they got all their books from for the curriculum. And Bob Jones University is has historical roots that stem into the KKK. So like Oof. just that kind of idea of what fundamentalist Christianity can look like and feel like. And then when I would go to the city to be with my family who still lived in Philly, 
or go to church down there. I mean, my mom always said that she couldn't deal with like white church because it was the worship was too dry. They worship God like he's not even alive. And so I was just like, okay, mom, whatever. I'm I'm a child. I will go where you go. But my parents would go to church down there and I would go with them and I would not fit in there either because of the way that I sound. Anyone who is from the same part of Pennsylvania will know what this accent tells you. I'm from a suburb and I was oftentimes told like, oh, you're really bougie. You're like stuck up. You think you're a white girl. So I wouldn't fit in there either. Mm -hmm. So I've always felt like I've been kind of straddling between two worlds, always kind of like caught between the eclipses of two things. And for a long time, that was really alienating. And I wanted to kind of like burn away one side of myself or the other to try to fit. But I realized I am two things and I am many other things as well. But it took me a really long time to find confidence in that. And I think a lot of the poets who have meant so much to me have talked about what it is to be more than one thing, to be many things, to be an outsider. And I also feel like, too, because I'm obsessed with her, I feel like uh, Chelsea Wolf has a song where she says glitch of a woman. And I feel mm -hmm. like that's if every time I listen to that song, I will just like sit in my apartment in the dark and my cats are like, oh, she's doing this again. And I'll just <laughs> listen to that over and over again. But when I hear that, I'm like, you see me. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's the same feeling I get when I when I stumble across certain writers who I didn't know before Bessie had comes to mind. She's um, from Botswana. She's a prose writer. She wrote fiction and nonfiction. But all the poets and all the writers who kind of live in me and with me, I feel like it's really amazing to realize that you have these other voices with you, which kind of makes me think of like this new way of looking at ancestors, right? Like I have my ancestors, like my blood relatives, other folks who were just like aunties and aunties who weren't related by blood, who might have passed over, who care about me and are hopefully making sure I'm not walking into traffic while I'm texting. But I also have these these literary ancestors, mm -hmm. these voices who knew before I even knew what it was to kind of stand between two things and the knowledge that gives you. So I feel like when I was younger, I was just like, I just want to fit in. I, I don't want to be an outsider. And now I'm just like more outsiderness, please. Yes. Bring me your weirdos. Bring me your misfits. Like those are my people. And they remind me of the many strengths that we have. Because we see something that other people might not want to admit is there, but we also have embodied that and we have knowledge from that. Absolutely. Why don't we hear this next poem that you brought by Lucille Clifton? Who was always talking about the afterlife conversations with her mother in the introduction to this collection, which is like this poem is in the collected poems of Lucille Clifton, which is like this beautiful hardcover book that definitely looks like a grimoire but in the introduction Toni Morrison the Toni Morrison she takes up like a whole paragraph in the introduction just talking about a conversation she had with Lucille Clifton about Ouija boards oh, and when yes. I read that I was like yes <laughs> and I found that after I did the presentation but I was just like oh man I really need to go look at her archives because like I wonder do they have like her Ouija board in the archive but I will read this poem that might be familiar for many I think it has a lot of humor to it, but I also feel like it's a way where it's teaching you a lesson, but it's still going to make you laugh if you pick up on the joke. This poem is called In Salem, and it's dedicated to Jeanette. Weird sister, the black witches know that the terror is not in the moon, choreographing the dance of were ladies, and the terror is not in the broom swinging around to the hum of cat music, nor the wild clock face grinning from the wall. The terror is in the plain pink at the window and the hedges moral as fire and the plain face of the white woman watching us as she beats her ordinary bread. 
Mm. It's beautiful and fierce. And as a white person listening to that poem, it makes me feel deeply sad. (laughs) But also, she's such a badass and what a beautiful writer. Yeah. I feel like one thing that I really enjoy about Lucille Clifton is the way that she pulled from so many things, whether it was like witchiness or stories, her own matriarchs, trauma and the difficulties she faced in her life and the relationships that she had, whether it's grief or joy, and also like archetypes from history, archetypes from mythology, and also the Bible. I feel like reading her work recently as I've been trying to And I apologize to my agent. If you ever hear this and you're listening, I'm sorry. I know I have to email you. I feel like her work is kind of teaching me a way to build a new modality around the myths that you don't get to choose. Mm -hmm. Um, The stories that are told to you and told to you is truth. And you don't have a choice about that because when you're a kid, you don't really get to choose. If you're brought up in a certain setting in terms of religion and spirituality, And it doesn't always end up being traumatic, but sometimes it is if you're a person who's anxious like I am. So I feel like her work has kind of taught me how to take these stories that I know like the back of my hand and rework them in a way that fits for who I am now, which has been really, really wonderful. But I think about that poem, what I love so much about it is that it reminds me of when my friends and I will have conversations, my friends who are women of color, specifically my friends who are black, when we have conversations about what it is to live in Brooklyn Mm. (laughs) as like, black millennials who definitely have friends who say things and they don't mean it in a certain way. But at the same time, you're just like, oh, no, we're going to have to talk about this. If you do it another time or two more times or however many times in your head, do you allow your friends to say or do certain things until you're like, hey, let me let me give you like an Angela Davis book or something. I don't know. Um, But I think that there is a conversation there that I think is kind of leaning towards this idea of like, how do we look at history and like, who are we centering? And are we centering the narrative that we feel most comfortable with because it reflects us or because it's the truth or because it's just convenient? And I love that she kind of talks about Salem in this way, because I I was a historical reenactor in Salem when I went to a liberal arts Christian college. Hmm. Um, But while I was there, a lot of people thought that I was Tichuba. And I was like, no, I'm Zipporah. I have a whole backstory because I was a street cast member for a play that's a historical reenactment play there based off of, I think, the trial of Bridget Bishop. And then when I went back to Salem years later, I went to one of the museums and they like did a reenactment. And then we got to like go down to the basement and see these like weird wax figures that were supposed to be like Puritans. And I asked one of the people that worked there, I asked her like, oh, you guys skipped over Tichuba and you didn't say anything about her history or her husband or the other people of color who were maybe they weren't black in the way we see black today, but Mm -hmm. they were definitely not European Puritans, they were Indian. Exactly. Yep. So I asked and she like kind of wouldn't really answer. And then I was like, look, I used to work for Cry Innocent. Like, give me the real deal. And she's like, oh, okay." And she told me it was because it was too complicated. And she's like, it's just really complicated. And it's just like, these are people's histories. Yeah. These are things that would help us link ourselves back to our history that to kind of turn that myth that there weren't black witches, that there weren't witches of color, there weren't practitioners of color. Likely they weren't even witches. Right. But they were known as that. So if we celebrate fight as that or maybe at least exoticized as that. Yeah, exactly. And that that made them vulnerable just because their modalities of what their religion and spirituality was, was seen as 
witchcraft. Yeah. When really it could have just been something else. Or maybe it was. We don't know. Many of the people who were, you know, called witches in Salem weren't. Likely they were, I think the most modern day closest thing they'd be, and this might make a lot of people upset. They were like right wing Christians. Like Puritans were like left their country because they were too hype about religion. They pushed them out. They're like, y'all have to leave. They're like, we got to go somewhere else. We got to set up shop, do what we want, our rules. And so I just feel like skipping over that history of what it meant to be a person of color in that colonized space, to be a slave in that colonized space. Because I think a lot of people like to say like, oh, it was um, she was Tichiba was a she was a slave. Exactly. The other people were slaves. And we need to reckon with that history. And so I feel like to me, this poem kind of says, like, how are the ways that we're still failing to pay homage to those people whose stories were squished down or omitted or redacted or left on the shelf because it was too difficult? What's languishing in an archive somewhere because people don't want to look at it? Yeah. And like reckon with it. Yeah. And for me, as a person of color living in 2019, soon to be 2020, it's really hard to be at peace with that and just be like, okay, it was complicated. And it makes me think, like, if I don't use my voice and if we don't use our voices, how will people look back on this time and say, oh, this person did this thing, but it's too complicated. So we'll just leave it out. Absolutely. One of my favorite examples of you shining that light on history is a piece that you wrote for Shondaland called Holy Spirits, the Power and Legacy of America's Female Spiritualists. And in that piece, you talk about specifically black women who were spiritualists and mediums and, you know, women who were talking to the dead and who were leaders in this space who often aren't either talked about in that context or whose names, frankly, I hadn't heard before. You know, certainly Sojourner Truth I was familiar with, but Rebecca Cox Jackson, Harriet Jacobs, Harriet E. Wilson. These are names that I confess were totally new to me until you wrote that article. So I'd love to hear about how you discovered them. So that goes back to grad school again. Hmm. And I feel like we had that one exchange in our one Instagram like chat where everyone was like sending like pictures of of everyone when we were like little kids dressed up as witches. Mm-hmm. And it's just like sometimes like there's things about when you look back at your childhood or like who you were like 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and you're like, yeah, I was definitely already like kind of starting moving towards manifesting and embracing that identity. And this was one of those moments I was in grad school. We were reading Arnig, which is written by Harriet E. Wilson. And it's like an autobiographical novel, but it's like an exploration of like, what is it to be a slave and then to be a free black person in the North? Instead of the South, because Mm -hmm. a lot of people were like writing these like abolitionist texts kind of showing the ugly. Well, I mean, is there a non ugly side to slavery? I don't know. But they were showing like why they need to get rid of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this book was trying to say, like, the North has its problems, too, which I think is a thing to remember um, in our current times. Like we have our issues in the North as well. Everything is not as liberal and easygoing and inclusive as we like to think, even here in New York City. Here in New York? Yeah. Is it the most segregated school system or certainly one of the public school system in the whole country? Exactly. And also I feel bad for not remembering exactly the percentage, but I think they do this every year. But they did a study recently to see how diverse the texts that students are being given in New York high schools and elementary schools what are they being taught? And the majority of the things they're being taught are white texts. It's like one of the most diverse school districts and they're being taught white authors. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that if you look at that even closer, likely they are straight authors who are male. So mm-hmm. it makes my 
stomach turn. But that's why when I am in those spaces, I'm just like, let's bring in all these other things. But in regards to these women and their histories, I was just a grad student, read Arnig. I was kind of like annoyed. I was like, I'm the only black person in here. I feel like everyone keeps staring at me while we're reading this as if I was alive during this time to tell them <laughs> what the experience was. <laughs> How was that for you, Deanna? Yeah, it's like, well, you know, I can't remember. I'm so old now. But while we were reading it, I feel like there were things that I was really impressed by with Wilson's work that she was one of the first um, black person to publish a novel. Mm. And then I was just like, I want to know more about her because I was fascinated with like this idea of, again, being an outsider, being someone who is not like the others or stuck between many communities or just doing things that aren't supposedly allowed for people like you to do. So I was just like kind of obsessed with her. And when we were given the option to like write an essay, engaging with the text, I was kind of obsessed with the idea of what it means for a person who's marginalized to be the first to tell their story and how they navigate that. And I was hitting a wall with research. And so my professor, who I thought did not even, he never said my name right. And so I didn't really like, vibe with him that much and so I didn't really felt like he saw me mm. as a person mm. but that's also coming from like being a person who grew up like in certain educational settings I'm just used to people being like we don't really know what to do with you so as long as you don't burn down the place you can just sit here and read and we'll grade your work but we don't really know about you because you're confusing to us because you're not what we think black people should be and so I was really surprised when this professor actually emailed me an article that he found on JSTOR love JSTOR but he sent me an article about Harriet E. Wilson being a part of spiritualism and that she was a spiritualist. She was a trans lecturer. She also sold her own little like concoctions. And she also was a huge advocate for children's rights in terms of working, because at that time, children were like working in factories and it was like a horrible situation. And she was like, no, they shouldn't be in these settings. She was obviously fighting for abolition and fighting for integrating communities and working together. And she was also one of the first people to have a school setting that was integrated. She started a little like kind of spiritualist Sunday school that then sometimes would have other classes for the kids to come and like learn to read. And they would like read like different little pieces of work that might be about spirit guides. It's, I'm just like, how did this even happen? Like, is this 2019 or is this like mm -hmm. the turn mm -hmm. of the century? But then things happened where she ran into Folks who are just like, oh, this is getting a lot of buzz. We're cool with it because you're our fam and our friend. But the other folks who are part of the spiritualist community, who are the higher ups, they don't feel comfortable about a black woman teaching and being the person who's like kind of running the school. Mm. And so she was demoted and like given a different role, which still happens today. Yep. This is not the same thing at all, but it makes me think about like, how the Me Too movement existed prior to the big moment that it quote unquote blew up. And it's brought about so much good and it's shined so much light on things that needed to be dealt with and confronted. But it began because a woman of color started it. And people know that, but do they really know that? Like how many times do we see her name, right? How many times do we see all these other movements that have started from more marginalized communities or if a marginalized person's at the forefront, what it only becomes valid it almost feels like gentrification of like modalities of activism or spirituality, mm -hmm. where it's just like it's only valuable when the person who's like at the front of it is a white person. Well, this is making me think of all the parallels that are happening in the witchcraft community today, because there are still so many people, myself included, who are getting you know, some amount of attention. And it's a, a lot of white ladies, right? 
and a lot of the witches in pop culture are still so often depicted as white. But as we know, there's a just a big problem of cultural appropriation happening in our community where white folks are borrowing, quote unquote, from different African diaspora traditions without understanding them or crediting them or being sensitive to it. But also just one of the things that I really appreciate about our coven and about our New York City witch family is how diverse it is. And I know that that is not true of a lot of, quote unquote, witch spaces and witch conversations. It's certainly something that I'm trying to shine a light on as much as I'm able to with my platforms. And it's something that I hope listeners who are white will be more mindful of, too, because the witchcraft movement is not just about white people. It can't be and it shouldn't be. Yeah, I definitely feel like that's something that that anecdote from history taught me. But it also, I feel like in going back to the Shondaland article and I had to like kind of dig a little deeper and find more women, that was a moment where I like kind of got to see another side of Sojourner Truth that I didn't know existed. And like instead of like the image that we get from that one like beautiful portrait of her like sitting um, where she's like, you know, you sell the shadow to support the substance or something along those lines. Which is such a witch. I know that is like I'm like, she is definitely (laughs) clearly a witch. But I think with her like looking at the connection between the Anabaptist movement. So we're talking about like Quakers, Shakers. I'm not sure if the Amish were in on the spiritualism stuff, but I definitely know that the Quakers and the Shakers were and seeing how Sojourner Truth being a part of that community and then also Rebecca Jackson being a part of that community and what that gave them. It gave them another modality for like community and friendship and family and also activism because they were with a bunch of other people who were like, you are too wild to be a part of this. So you need to go to Ohio and you need to go to Philly and you need to like whatever it is, we will support you at a distance because we are kind of freaked out by how wild y'all are. And I think that's so cool because I think even now, like I remember when the election happened and everyone's like protesting and like going to marches is the new brunch. And like, I don't know how long that lasted, but I didn't partake in it because I had gone to black lives matter marches where I was literally pushed out of the way by like non POCs. And I felt decentered at a black lives matter March. And my friend and I were just like, yeah, this, nah, this isn't for us. We're going to like go home and like, listen to emo and like eat cheese and just like hang out and like support each other and maybe paint our nails or something because this doesn't work. One of the things that I've gotten, especially as I start to get more stability in my life in various ways, thinking about how I can dismantle more directly the things that are oppressing all of us. I feel like Sojourner Truth and her going and being in communion with all these other abolitionists and all of these other like Anabaptists who were out there in the trenches doing the work but also having seances. And then (laughs) Rebecca Jackson, like her story fascinates me the most because she wanted to learn to read and her her older brother was just like being such a dude. And he was like, I'm busy. And so one day she was like sewing. And this is a paraphrase, of course, you can find it online. It's so fun to read out loud in Ubers. You should do that. I've done it. But she was sitting and sewing and she like felt the spirit like say to her, go up to the Bible, go upstairs. And then she went and then immediately she could read. And then she also is said to have been a person who could like predict the birth of people that weren't born yet. And then the person would be born. It would be like described exactly as she had thought of it. And she started doing lectures and she would preach and she would walk and travel and go on tour. And she was a shaker. And so she joined up with the shakers. 
But then I think they were kind of like, it was the same thing of race. Like they were very open to it, but some of the people who were like higher up. And so her and her fellow Shaker ladies, they decided to go to Philly and they set up their own house and they were called the Colored Rebecca's. And they would like hold lectures and have seances and like do a lot of work for the community. And when they like started getting all this support, they were very like flush. They had money. They were comfortable for shakers. And then so the folks who had sent them away are like, oh, no, come back. You're doing the best stuff. Come back. And so they go back to where they were. I think it was like in Ohio or somewhere up there. And then they were like, you have to leave again. Here's money. Go back to Philly and do your thing. So then they went back to Philly. And then when Rebecca passed, the other Rebecca, who's kind of like her bestie, took on her full name. And then they continued to just like have their community and do their thing. And I think that's just so radical where it's just like. When you're doing something with the intention to really uplift and connect and heal and to sort of spark progress with the people that you care for and the world that you want to, like, make a better place, the people that pushed you away will come knocking on your door. They'll realize they'll be like, no, it's too much truth. And then you'll get to have more control over how you get to spend your time and your energy. That's so awesome and so inspiring. On that wonderful note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I am very excited to share the news that we finally have Witch Wave merch. Yes, we have the official Witch Wave tote bag, which says witches are the future on it. We have gorgeous, glittery witches are the future enamel pins. And we also have signed books by me, both Waking the Witch and What is a Witch? So head on over to witchwavepodcast.com. Com slash shop and get your official Witch Wave merch today. It's a great way to support the show and it's a great way to share your love of magic and witchcraft with the world. Welcome back to the Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Dianca London. So, Dianca, I want to turn the spotlight onto you. This is our kind of Christmas slash Hanukkah slash solstice episode. And you brought up earlier that you grew up in a very Christian household. I know you as a member of my coven and a practicing witch. So I know you're writing an entire book about this and I can't wait to read it. But can you give us a tiny little sampler platter of how you came from this fundamentalist Christian background into being however you identify yourself spiritually today. Yeah. Sorry, mom and dad. Everything that any fundamentalist or conservative Christian fears might push their child towards witchcraft is what pushes your child towards witchcraft. (laughs) I always joke with my friends and say that if my parents would have just let me shop at Hot Topic, if they would have let me watch Buffy, I would probably be married to a minister and be living a very boring, (laughs) quote unquote, normal, calmish life. But Here I am, me as I am. I think, again, it's the outsiderness. I think when I was 13 to 16, which is kind of part of the trope of the teen witch, where you kind of are just like, I want more control. I want to be a person that can like protect myself. I want to have a way of like having choice. And so I think for me, that was like being like a teen goth. And I feel like being a teen goth also kind of lends itself to witchy things. For me, it gave me a sense of anchoring or a way of safety because I went to a fundamentalist Baptist school from kindergarten to eighth grade. And then I went on to a Mennonite high school, which was a lot 
better. But I feel like by then I was already sort of had experienced trauma in a way that it was going to always get in the way of spirituality for me. And then I then went on for some reason to go to a Christian college for two years and then went to a public university where I partied a little too much and found religion in other ways in terms of like going to shows and like reading a lot of books and going to like art shows, all these different things that college people do that feel very cliche, but are fulfilling. And then I joined a hipster church in Philly for about a year and a half and like fasted and like went to small group, which is kind of Bible study. It's kind of like coven for Christians, I guess. Mm. And then like I got baptized in a river. I'm a person who's been baptized like anywhere from three to four times, depending on if you count (laughs) being christened in my family's tradition. It does count. The river was the last one. But I feel like for me, witchcraft has been something that has allowed me to have space to question without rejection or shame. That was always something that was so hard for me to understand when I was younger as a child, obviously, because you're a kid and you don't get the world. But as I got older and I saw the, the hypocrisy or the spaces that were gray that didn't make sense to me that were more ambiguous. And I just really was always so afraid to like ask questions because I didn't want people to say like, well, you don't really believe. And it wasn't that. It's just I wanted a dialogue. Like Mm -hmm. if if the God I was taught to love and worship is alive, then why can't I ask him questions or ask my fellow believers per se in that sense, like questions without it causing a rupture of fear. So I think now that I'm able to like use tarot and kind of like explore what prayer looks like through a different lens and to sit in circle with you and all of our sister witches, I feel like it's so healing and it's really beautiful because it's making me kind of question like was it christianity that was the problem for me or was it just the people who were saying that what they were doing was something i should believe in definitely christianity historically has too much blood on its hands but i think that if you look at the things that haven't been tainted by misinterpretations by patriarchy slipping their hands into like a holy script and changing it and twisting it so it's what they want it to be, mm-hmm. weaponizing it. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like, honestly, Jesus was probably a witch. Like, he turned water into wine and he was always just like hanging out with his friends and they had a very specific number of people that were around. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think Jesus was a witch. He brought the dead back to life. I don't know. Like, I don't know what kind of like weird emails I might get from that. But I just feel like there's ways where I'm learning again that like, There are things that I can kind of reclaim, like Clifton, like Lord, like the wonderful Margaret Abbott, who I love so much. All of the writers that I enjoy, there are things in the Bible and for whatever book that you were raised on in terms of religion that can give you more freedom and space than you think. Absolutely. And so and I also think I'm still probably like technically a Christian because I think like it's kind of like virginity. Like once you lose it, that's like it. I've been finding a lot of in the ex-evangelical community, there's a lot of folks who are like, yeah, like I'm kind of like a, I don't know, like a deconstructed, reconstructed Christian. I practice tarot. Like here's a selfie of me with all my crystals. And I'm just like, I think it's beautiful to see the diversity and the various expressions of how we can engage with spirituality and also in a way to reconnect it to ourselves and the world around us. Because I think we need wider imaginations when it comes to that. Here, here, Bianca, I could not agree with you more. I hear so many listeners' voices in my head while I'm listening to you speak, and they are asking a question, which I get in my email box and in person all the time, which is, how do you reconcile your witchliness with family systems or communities that still are afraid of it or might potentially reject you? 
So if you don't mind my asking, like, where are you at in terms of revealing your witchy side to your presumably still Christian family and community that you hail from? I guess the community that I interact with that is still Christian or Christian adjacent, they're just as witchy as I am. Like I had a conversation with a wonderful friend whose book I adore so much, Adrienne Shirk. She invited me to her church a few days ago, like maybe sometime last week. And she's super, I think she's super witchy. We've talked at great length about shakers and like tarot and like utopias and different ways of looking at the world and how to kind of crack open the myth and like live the real juicy abundance that you can get out of thinking outside of the box. So I feel like there's ways in which I almost feel like I've lied to myself about how much space there is for witchiness within the sort of traditions that I came up with and also the traditions that I've inherited. Mm. Um, I feel like one thing that's interesting is that like, obviously my parents likely if they hear this, will probably be like, what is she talking about? Why is she this way? Like, but I also feel like my mom believes in laying on of hands. Like she's definitely like known things that I don't know why she knew them. (laughs) So, yeah. And I feel like my grandmother and my great grandmother and like all the women in my family have that as well. I don't know like how they would reckon with that, but I feel like parents know things about you without like outwardly being like they've seen the articles that I've written. I think they know, but I always feel like I underestimate how people love you. And I know that they probably aren't happy about some of the things that I do or how I act. But, you know, I think that there is an understanding that like I do at my core believe in what is good and what is important and the things that really help cultivate connection between people in a meaningful way. So I feel like my own weird golden rule, like those things are still in me, but I feel like just the way that I approach prayer and worship, I feel like my parents already know, but I haven't told them, which is like terrible, but I'm definitely trying to kind of like give myself space to enjoy something and navigate it without having to defend it. Cause I feel like that then would just be folding back into the old traumas of what kind of made Christianity so difficult for me to navigate as a child and a teenager and a young adult. Um, I want space to not know. I love that. And that's one of the things that I personally love about witchcraft is it honors mystery. It doesn't pretend to have all the answers. And it sounds to me like that's an element to it that you really gravitate towards as well and really appreciate too. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dianca. Bearing in mind that this is our holiday show, I know that you talk about the apocalypse a lot. Your forthcoming book is called Planning for the Apocalypse, Meditations on Faith and Being the Only Black Girl at Your Party. How are you feeling about the apocalypse today? (laughs) That's like a good question that I should ask myself every morning. Uh, I can make a calendar maybe. Is it um, something you're literally afraid of and thinking about? Is that actually yeah, something? No, yeah, it is. It's sad. It's weird. It's it's not strange, though, for someone of my background. And I feel like I have to say, like, especially for any listeners who grew up very Christian or grew up very kind of like immersed in a very particular fundamentalist structure, popping around on the Internet, I stumbled on like Exvangelical, um, which is a podcast. And there's like a whole community of people who are like kind of deconstructing from that way of thinking. And I feel like hearing other people say like, yeah, I grew up afraid that I would come into the kitchen and my parents would be gone and they'd just be like piles of clothes because the biblical rapture had happened, which is when Christ comes and takes the church to heaven. 
And then the apocalypse happens and there's like the horsemen of the apocalypse. And then I, I thought that I was over that fear and that it had just become like a metaphor. But hearing all these things all the time online where people are just like, oh, it's the end of the world. It's the end of days. It's the apocalypse. It always kind of makes me be like, oh, this is maybe just part of like our fear of change and what it means to go from one cycle into another. But then the other day I was listening to WNYC and my Wi-Fi got spotty and it dropped. I was like, what happened? Did the apocalypse happen? And I like ran to my computer and then I ran to the window and I was just like, I need to talk to my therapist about this because it is something that I still fear. But I think that also it's very human to fear um, cataclysmic change. Well, and especially I assume you were taught about this at a very young age that it was literally a thing that is going to happen. And I also assume that you've lived through moments, you know, wasn't the apocalypse supposed to come in like Y2K? Yeah. Yeah, And you've lived through that and you see it didn't happen. But I'm sure it's hard to unlearn that when this is a message that you've gotten from a young age. Do you feel like witchcraft is helping you navigate some of those fears? I think it is because I think, um, again, this is like, is like maybe this is also sponsored by tarot um but like with tarot i've like been dabbling around with it since i moved to new york which sounds like a very cliche thing for a transplant millennial to say but i'll own that but realizing that when you cycle through and you've like had growth and you've worked with each card or certain cards keep popping up and then you get to go to the next one and then like it goes all the way back around it's a cycle that leads to something else And I feel like there's a way where it's like it's not so much a cutoff or complete ending or an erasure of everything that came before, but more of an invitation into like finding new stories that learning how to banish linearity and to embrace things that are just like folding in on itself, things where you can't predict where it will go and that a new beginning isn't necessarily a hard ending that's going to be getting rid of everything who you were before and everything that you know, but it's just another another layer. So I feel like in that way, like witchcraft has been super helpful. Apocalypse just means that it's a moment of like ending that leads to another change in a new beginning. There's like my new favorite catchphrase of telling my friends, I'm like, every day is an apocalypse, <laughs> but not always in a bad way. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dianca, we are almost at the end of time, not the end of <laughs> days, hopefully. So we didn't get to Margaret Atwood, but she has gotten lots of attention already. So just a quick plug. Everyone should read your profile that you wrote in Glamour magazine about her and the interview you did with her. Yeah, when I interviewed her at the very last moment before we hung up, I asked her about her thoughts on the apocalypse because I'm just obsessed with that and obsessed with hers. I'm like, this seems perfect. She's like, the problem is linearity. Like when you think that time is linear, that a story is linear. There's always going to be an ending. There will always be an apocalypse. But when you don't look at it as linear, then it's just beginnings. Absolutely. Dianca, before we go, where can people find you and your incredible writing? Um, So you could probably just Google my name, Dianca London. It's spelled like Bianca, but with a D. Or you could follow me on Twitter at Dianca London. And then my Instagram is a little difficult to find because I, as problematic as he might be, love Morrissey and the Smith. So my Instagram is G-R-R-R-R-L, afraid. Um, So it's girl afraid without an I and an extra R as in riot girl. Awesome. Awesome. So I think that that is an excellent place to end, um, especially given that we are about to have a new year. And so it's a time of new beginnings and new intentions. 
and I always get very reflective at the end of a year and look back and think about what I'm grateful for. And Dianca, I am so grateful for you and your friendship, your scholarship, and the ways in which you're conjuring your own very special magic in the world. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I feel equally the same way about you. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Dianca London for her brilliant wordcraft and witchcraft. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the witch wire. The Witch Wave is produced, written, and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs. Thank you, Rachel, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Lara Antal, and Chiquita Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website. And now you can buy Witchwave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really does make a huge difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. And please consider grabbing my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.